Please note, this episode contains descriptions of rape, drug-facilitated sexual assault, physical abuse, and torture. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Trafficked. This is episode number one. I am honored and thrilled and excited and scared and all the emotions about sharing this series with you. I, it has been there latent for some time. It actually hasn't been latent at all. It's been there right under the surface, kicking and screaming. And I was like, I'm not ready. <laughs> I'm not ready yet. It's too much to face. I don't know. I don't know. And finally, it was time. I, uh, uh, someone I know very well who was a, is a former client of mine during the most recent ex, ex, explosion in the news of, of, uh, Epstein and Jillane Maxwell, they reached out to her, the nightly news to ask if she could speak and it re-traumatized her. And I get it. Mm. I get it. This is somebody who was trafficked for decades from ages two, well, nearly two to 18. And you can only imagine the, the deep, dark well that that can be in a person, no matter how much internal work they've done. And I said to myself, I looked at myself in the mirror and, and, and stopped what I was doing and said, it is my duty to tell these stories now. All of the survivors are not able to tell their stories, but I am able. And if I'm uncomfortable, so be it. It's time for this. It's, it, now is the time. So I'm starting this series with my story to provide some background and context as to why I'm doing these interviews. I'm not doing these interviews as a journalist. I'm doing these interviews as a survivor. And to tell my story today, I brought my very dear friend, Jesse Torres, who is also a survivor, to be here to witness. Jesse, I love you. Thank you so much for being here. Ooh, love you right back. It's my honor to be here and privilege to just be able to be in this space with you for making such a magical difference. So thank you, Cheryl, for your courage. Thank you. So I'm going to share my story and then I'm going to share uh, some, some of the insights that I have that I think will make a difference, that I think will make a difference. There, there you go. Um, so I, uh, it's a funny thing. I, I usually share my story in a very particular way. If we, if we haven't gotten to meet yet and you haven't seen anything, I, I share my story on the national news and, and I, I'm a speaker and I've written a few books and, and I, I, my, my general way of speaking about it is I put a bow at the end, so to speak. Like I'm, I'm doing great and you can as well. And I believe that. I, I wholeheartedly believe that we can overcome anything that life hands us. And yet that is not the, the feel of this series, Traffic. It just isn't. Because the problem isn't something that can be wrapped up with a bow. This is something that is going on all the time right now, not just far off lands across the world. This is happening in our own backyard, literally and metaphorically. So if we can awaken to this and each one of us can take a role in stopping traffic now, that is what it's actually going to take for each one of us to become an advocate and an ally and an activist, quite frankly we can put an end to this in this generation now. Yes. So I may share things I don't always share, but here goes. So I, I grew up on a horse ranch in the mountains of Colorado and it was very remote and it was, it could have been hundreds of years ago. It was just no signs of civilization. So very lovely as a little child, like a fairy tale land. And then as a teenager, what the hell? Get me out of here. <laughs> I want to see actual humans and not just land 
and cows for miles. And I used to lie on my back in the field, in the meadow, you know, like among the cattle and just look up at the sky and see planes. We were in the flyover zone, you know, and, and I'd look at planes and think, oh, if I just stared hard enough at that plane, I'll get magically sucked up inside of it. And then I'll be in the plane looking down at the girl on the ground. Mm. And I'd look up and think, oh, I, I better not stare too hard because I don't know if I'm ready. What if I get to the big city right now? What would happen? But someday soon I'll be ready. And I decided as a teenager, okay, some days right now, it's time to get out of here. And I was looking for ways to not just go to the city. I didn't want to just go on vacation. I talked a friend into going on vacation with me, but I didn't just want to get there and then leave. I wanted to get there and stay. And my parents had just gotten divorced. And they, there was this period of time when they weren't, it, it was acrimonious. They weren't talking. And I thought, aha this is manipulative, but it, I wanted to get out. And I said, I'm just going to take advantage of this. I'm going to play one against the other and I'm going to work it out. So I get to go to Europe because I'd read this glamour magazine where they said they're always looking for models. And I was like, Hey, I, there's no modeling in Rye, Colorado or anywhere near here. So I, I'm, this is, this is what I'm going to do. I, I just, that's where they need models. I think, I don't know, but it sounded so glamorous and fancy and all this. And so I talked to my best friend into going, that was it. Big day came, there we go. And that's that. And here we are, Europe, welcome. And no sooner did we get there, there was this man with a huge fancy looking camera around his neck. You know, it's like in retrospect, we just kind of screamed tourists. We had these ridiculous suitcases that were gigantic, gigantic and overstuffed. And then a flipping carry-on. <laughs> like I literally could, could have changed clothes every day till the end of time and still had leftovers. But I, I, for whatever reason, I thought I needed to bring everything I liked to Europe. And it was, there was no way to be nimble. There was no way to move. But none of those things occurred to me leaving. Right. My mom did agree for me to go finally, knowing that I, I was going to do whatever the hell I wanted anyway. I hate to say that about myself. I don't think of myself as so jerky, but imagine having a teenager and who's that impudent, like, I'm just going to go. And she finally said, I'll give you my blessing under the condition that you never split up from your friend and that you call me every few days. And so I said, okay, I'd never broken my word to my mother in the past. I'd never lied. And that, why would I do any differently now? So I could live with that. Fine. Here we go. So this man with a camera around his neck asks me if I'm a model. Says he can make me one. And I'm like, that's it. That's my ticket. Oh my God. It was easier than I thought. I am like, how awesome. I'm like so uh, such a dang superstar manifester here. Look at this. I just say, I'm going to be a model. And this guy who says he's going to make me one. And my friend is like, uh, no, of course not. But she goes to the bathroom and I start talking to him. And what are you here for? Are you, are you a model? And I go, oh my God, I want to be a model so bad. Well, I could make you one. Just come with me and my friend. And there's this big, big man leaning up against the wall in the background. And I'm like, okay, this maybe isn't the smartest thing, but I'm smart. I could figure what, what could possibly go wrong. I'm, I could figure it out. Even if it did, I'm smart. I'm strong. You don't live on a, on a ranch and not have a lot of grit to you. I'm like, I'll figure it out. And he's asking me questions. Well, why who are you here with and what are you doing and why do you and I'm like he's gonna make me a model so I'm answering every question oh I want to I live in a really small town and I want to get out of there and I want to and I, I tell you I've told the guy my life story by the time my friend comes back and she's like no no 
we leave, we drag all of our ridiculous amount of stuff and find some pension kind of cheap hotel check in and we decide to go out and my birthday's coming up. So she goes, I'm going to buy, we were so poor, you know, at this age, it's like we saved up all of our money from our jobs, you know, like little kid jobs, <laughs> you know, not this like, I, I had worked in a gas station and I had been a lifeguard at a pool is like, you know, how much money do you make from that? Not, not much. So we didn't have much money. She was pretty much the same. But she goes, I'm going to buy a bottle of wine because your birthday's coming up. And we're sitting there at this outdoor little cafe and having wine. And I felt, oh my God, this is the life. I'm so glamorous and all this. And she goes to the bathroom or something. And there's the man with the camera again. And his friend like trailing behind him and not coming up. And he starts to talk to me about being a model and that really I could do it. Definitely. He knows all the models. He knows he's, he's a famous hairdresser and photographer. He knows them all. and He's clear that I can be one. And then my friend comes back to the table and she goes, no, no, and no. And they get into this argument. And he says something like, you see this ring here and he's got a pinky ring on. This is more, this costs more money than your dad will ever make in his lifetime. Mm. And I had these mixed feelings of like, it was so ugly and she's yelling and he's yelling and he walks away that the like waiter or manager or somebody from the restaurant walks up to the table. The man walks away. They say something in French or, and then, you know, something he leaves. And it's like, I've got these mixed feelings. Like I'm upset at my friend for ruining my chances. Right. I'm embarrassed for her because how did he know her dad didn't make all this money? And I'm like, and he has a pinky ring. I don't know. God, how much money is that ring worth? And how much I've got all these feelings and it's, you know, it goes away again. And he had left his card and said, I want to meet you. I want to meet you later and, and this and that. And now she had gone off later. She'd met some guys and I, I didn't, I didn't want to go to nightclubs and I just didn't want, I wanted to now be a model for God's sakes. So I took the opportunity to leave Now, it doesn't take a whole lot to figure out that these men were not, in fact, photographers. They were criminals. They drugged me. They, uh, the next thing I knew, I was sitting in the front seat of a car with my head like hanging out the window, my tongue out and drooling like a dog. And we were going up these curvy roads and I thought, oh God, this is not good. But I kept thinking, when are we going to take the pictures? When are we going to take the pictures? And they took me to this construction site. It was just like dark and plastic flapping. It's like the weirdest thing. It's like, I tell you, sheets of plastic. It's got this sound to it. Does mm. that sound like the weirdest thing, Jesse? Oh, it's distinct though. It's like something that just embedded in what everything was going on. It's like, it just sticks out somewhere for the brain to go. It's like, it's like the sound of flapping plastic. It's, it's the weirdest thing. At one point I was walking by a construction site years later, I lived in New York city and I about jumped out of my skin. I heard that flapping plastic sound. And it was like, I, 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 I peed. It scared me so bad. Mm. It was just like, I was gone for a second. And, um, so there I am. And they're doing things to me. The big one is 
putting out his cigarette on me. He would like to, he, that's what he did. He's just there for torture, I guess. Yeah. Just putting it out down in my genitals. Just, that's what he did. And, you know, they did everything else you can think of. I mean, like, I don't understand. I had, I had, speaking of pee, I had peed. I was lying in a pee, pool of my own urine. And they still just came in and kept having sex with me and raping me on top of pee. I don't understand. I like, I started, this was, there was no, there was no thought going on. There was, when we kick into survival, there's not logical thought, mm -hmm. but I was, I just started talking and I would talk, I was talking, my little brother was having problems in school, but he's super smart. Like he was always inventing things like, you know, we had <laughs> chicken <laughs> at the ranch and, and he didn't, his job was to collect the eggs, but he didn't want to collect the eggs every day. <laughs> And he was like, I'm going to create something that just pulls up the chicken with one hand and it grabs the eggs. But he was always inventing something. And so I started talking about my little brother and they're holding him back. But it's just, it's not the fault of my brother. It's the fault of the school and the teachers because there's all kinds of genius. It's not just spelling or math or science. It's like, or reciting crap from history. It's being able to solve problems. Like get eggs from chickens when you don't want to get the eggs from the chickens. <laughs> you know, like that's, and the big one would just kick me, mostly in the head, just kick me and kick me and kick me until I would stop. But then I would just start talking again. I don't know why I wasn't trying to think. I wasn't thinking. I just was talking. It was, I couldn't stop. Over the years, I've looked back at it like, you know, as I've talked to law enforcement, they're like, oh, well, you humanized yourself and you're this. I was like, I didn't, I, there was not, God's grace maybe, because there was not an ounce of thinking going on. Do you remember what you were saying? Oh, I was talking about how my little brother should not be held back in school. Wow. I was talking about how smart he is and all the inventions that he's come up with and what he did with the chicken eggs one time, he hit him when he was little, he hit him all around the house and he thought he was going to give us for Easter a bunch of little chicklets, but they actually rotted, but he couldn't remember where he'd put them all. And I'm telling all this stuff and they're just kicking me and burning me and cutting me and raping me. And I just kept talking. I was talking about my grandma. She used to try to hold my hand We'd go to the mall. It was like my favorite thing. And, you know, it, as a teenager, whatever. And she would try to hold my hand and I'd be like, <laughs> Grandma, don't. All the big girls are looking at me like, oh, don't. I can't hold your hand. And I would shrink away or try to fake point at something like I was. And I just was saying, if I ever live through this, I am going to hold my grandma's hand forever. And I don't care who sees, I will be so proud. And I'm not going to manipulate my parents and sass back to them and all these things I said I would do if I ever lived and at one point they took me out and it was like light and I couldn't, I was like, oh, we're going to take the photos. And the ringleader guy cut my hair off. I mean, I'm talking like inches, like five, like, you know, below my shoulders to like short. But like, it looked like I had gone through like a deli slicer. You know, it was like, wacky and chopped and short. And he's telling me, I know Vidal Sassoon. And I'm like, oh, there's like the haircutting places. And oh God, he's the real thing. He knows Vidal Sassoon. Wow. Oh, he can cut my hair. And then I go back in 
to the cement and it all starts all over again. And then at one point, it's like, I don't know if it's day or night. They had said to me at one point in the beginning, they gave me, they said, do you want cocaine? All models do cocaine. Now I'm from Rye, Colorado. I'm not even from Rye, Colorado. Frankly, I used to pretend I was from Rye, Colorado because it was a quote town that had a stop sign. <laughs> I'm, I'm like from like 20 minutes from there. I'm like from literally the middle of nowhere on the San Isabel National Forest. I mean, nowhere. And I, I was like, oh my God, I'd never seen the drugs. I'd never, nothing. And they go, all the models do cocaine. If you're going to be a model, you need to be doing cocaine. So they're still telling you the story. Just all this nonsense. Yes, Jesse. Mm. And they give me this foil, like en foil folded in like, like an envelope at the sides in and then up at the top and bottom, like it looks like an envelope. And I open it up and it's brown powder, light brown powder, like beige color. And I go, I don't, know, I don't know a hell of a lot, but I don't think cocaine is brown. What was it? Hell, I think it was heroin, but oh. I have no damn idea. I've never seen it still. I, I mean, in some ways, look, I mean, let's face it. I got, <laughs> I, I'm still, I'm from a small town. I've lived in a big city for a long time, but I, nobody's ever handed me a, pa a foil envelope package of, light brown beige powder and I don't know if that's what they gave me or what over and over every time I would drink something it was just like did you were you in and out of consciousness yes and finally at one point it's time to go and I thought I hope we're going to take the photos, but I think they mean it's time to go in a bad way, like something bad's going to happen. Mm. And he said, clean up. And took me to this place where there was a pipe coming out of the wall. And I found some sandpaper and fucking scrubbed myself and scrubbed, you know, the whole genital area. There's no getting that clean. Mm. There's none. You don't have to use that much sandpaper until you actually start bleeding. And I thought, I don't want to be bleeding anymore. They had cut me. But, and I was still out of it. Like I'm out of it and scrubbing and out of it and trying to clean and out of it. I rinsed my hair off and the craziest thing was he came and started hitting me in the face, like punching me in the face for rinsing my hair off because he said, I styled it. Wow. The confusion, the. I styled it. Like uh, a long short, They, we drove for a while. I don't know how long I was pulled up to this park and he just like pushed me out of the car onto the ground. How long had it been? It had been three days. Mm. And he goes, darling. And I looked. And he snapped my photo. Wow. And he drove away. And I pretended to be dead. I mean, I just looked over my shoulder when he was taking the photos, but I pretended to be dead anyway. And when it was like truly no th nothing and nobody was there, I got up and ran. Now, back in the day, I don't know. 
like back in the day before cell phones, this was before cell phones, you know, I had to call if I, if you were going to make a call overseas, you had to go to a, a post office or an American express office. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yep. Like <laughs> long time ago, it was like they had to dial a call for you. Mm-hmm. So I'm there waiting. And it was at, at this particular one. We're, we're in Nice, France. And this particular one had doors that like telescoping doors, like just slid open all the way. So there was like this slid open all the way door. And then this wall with a bank of telephones on it. Usually you would get your own phone booth. Not, not here. The phones were like two and a half, three, maybe three, I guess that would be like a yard, like three feet apart. And then there was another one of those big telescoping doors. And I was at the very end phone. And they let me know that my call is ready. And it's like, I don't know, 2 a.m. or some damn thing. I don't even know in the middle of the night, Colorado time. And I called my mom and she's sound asleep. Hello, hello. And I say, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. My God. What I did to my mother, could you imagine as a mom? You immediately know you're not okay. Yes. Those words say everything but I'm okay. Exactly. And then he walks up, the one with the camera, the ringleader, and just nonchalantly puts his arm against the wall and leans over, who are you calling? And I go, hello, 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 and just hang up. I got no answer. Let's go for a drink, he says. Like we're buddies or dating or some damn thing. Was there anybody else around you? Well, the other people that were on the fo- their phones, you know, at the phone bank, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I go, Sure. I just have to go to the bathroom. I need to pee or something like that. I don't know that I would say it in that crass way, but just give me a moment. And I walked out. I was wearing these shoes, these stupid shoes. I used to fight back and forth with my sister about these stupid shoes. They were pink leather. It was a long time ago. Pink leather flats. The soles were made out of leather too. They were made in Italy and they were the slipperiest damn things. And it was cobblestone streets. Yikes. Yeah. And I was running. I used to run track and cross cross country. I was running so fast. My feet were kicking my butt. I went these flipping slippery shoes. I didn't care if I kicked one off and never saw it again. I was running as fast as I could. And just running, 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 not even looking back, just running as fast as I could. And by the grace of God, I came upon the crappy pension that we were staying at, walked in and up these stairs, like you'd have to walk up like 50 stairs, you know, not, not even 50, like way more, like four stories or some damn thing. Mm-hmm. You have to get the key from the desk and these these big, heavy keys. So I guess you don't take them with you because they weigh like five pounds. And I walk in, let myself in, and she's sleeping and she starts to scream. And I throw my my friend and I throw myself on her and hold my hand over her mouth. Don't say anything. Because if he followed me to make the phone call, he could have followed me there. Mm -hmm. And I said, we have to leave now. No, I met so and so, and I want to go. And I have a date later. And did she wonder where you were? She was sound asleep. Mm. We have to go now. I left most of the junk in that big stupid suitcase there, and we ran. We went to the train station and hopped on the first train. It was going to Italy. It didn't matter. We had you know URL passes. That was that. We got on a train, and that was that. Mm. Now, in terms of, did she wonder? We were at that teenage, we were teenagers. We were at that age where you step over stuff. I'm bruised. My hair is chopped up and looks like I've been through 
some crazy floby attack or whatever that stupid vacuum haircutting thing is. I, I'm, I'm, I've been gone for days. And we don't say anything. But what she does instead is offers me a cigarette. Now, again, we were two broke ass kids. Right. We didn't share cigarettes or any other thing because we were both so dang broke. I know that may sound petty or whatever, but she offered it to me and I took it like the olive branch that it was. Yeah. And so you go into these tunnels and the train shakes, like shakes and reverberates. But the thing is, for whatever reason, the lights go off on the train. So you're in pitch black. And these tunnels take like minutes. So we're in pitch black and it's shaking. And I swear to God, the little, we're in this little, like little internal car with the hallway next to it. I don't know what you call it, like the big long cars. And then this is internal little cabin with like, I guess like eight seats, four on one side, four on the other kind of, kind of thing. I don't remember the exact configuration, but like that, I swear to God, I hear the door open and close and somebody comes in and goes <sighs> into my ear and leans up next to me. Like I can feel the heat radiating. And I go, oh, she says nothing. When the lights come back on, nothing said, nothing. And this is when it hits me. Remember how I was like, oh, I'm going to be free. I'm going to be free. I'm going to do all these things differently. Life's going to be so great as soon as I'm free. No, hell it isn't. Mm. That's when the real captivity begins because you can never break free of what's between your ears. Right. Let me rephrase. I, I Eventually, yes, I did. But, and I'm sitting there literally on the train going, I have, I am going to die if I don't figure out what to do about this, I need to just get back to like it, life like it was. I have to get back. That is the, one of the most debilitating myths that we believe that there's ever a way to get back. I see on the news now and people are talking about COVID-19 and you just, you know, someday when we get back to like it was, that's a myth. Hmm. There is never getting back to like it was. You have to find a way to create a new normal. There's never going backwards. Believe me, I friggin' tried. And I decide on that train, the only way I'm gonna actually live It's like, I can't, this can't have happened. I just can't. I have to push it down. I have to pretend it didn't happen. Even to myself. I can't, I can't, I will actually die. And it was the subsequent weeks, like we were for weeks and weeks in this supposed fantastic trip to Europe and I'm in hell. I can't think about it. I can't think about it. I can't think about it. They're chasing me. They're chasing me. I can't think about it. I'm ruined, I'm filthy, I'm disgusting, I'm dirty, I'm... Do you know how hard it is to heal a wound that goes from your vagina to your anus? Every time you're sitting or being or something, there's no way to not sit or pee or have a bowel movement. That thing takes for fucking ever to heal. That answers that question. Am I going <laughs> to swear in the podcast? And you're here. <laughs> I'm like, I want this to be appropriate for all audiences, but this topic just ain't. And yet the, the paradox is child, 
trafficking. God, it's the ultimate paradox, right? So I just decided I would have to pretend it didn't, I, it didn't happen. And I went way over 10 years with never telling a soul, not my mother who I talked to multiple times a day and my best friend in the, she was my best friend in the world, not my therapist. I got a therapist finally. I was like, uh, let's say hypothetically speaking. I mean, she had me like hitting fake chairs with a bat and I mean, just God bless, but that did not a damn thing for me. Mm. Well, yeah, it couldn't help because I didn't tell her what was happening. You know, I talked about some hypothetical non-consensual potential sexual thing that may have happened to a friend. <laughs> Good Lord. That's so hard to hold inside. Good Lord. It sure was, but it's just like, man, the, the brain is brilliant. It's scar tissue. You know, we just push stuff down and it festers and, and oozes pus until it just creates, it's encapsulates itself and creates a scar but then it's like, I can't interact in that area. I can't talk about this. I can't talk about that. I can't think about this. And our world just starts to become smaller and smaller and smaller. I eventually became a model, not even that much longer. I mean, it's same damn trip. Because I was like, that's it. I did all of this to become a model. I'm going to do it. I don't give a damn. Mm. And it was like the perfect place for me because nobody ever wanted me to talk. <laughs> <laughs> when you're a model, they don't give a damn. They don't want to hear from you. They don't, I mean, I suppose if you're famous, somebody cares, but you know, just like the rank and file, nobody gives a damn. They want you to just shut up anyway. And you're working all over the world with people from all over the world. And most people don't have common languages they speak anyway. So just, it was the perfect place. I would just keep a book in front of me all the time. So nobody would ever talk to me and I wouldn't dare risk saying, letting them know I was so filthy and rotten and ruined and damaged. <sighs> My mom was a very spiritual person. She was a yoga teacher and had been going to India since for decades. And there was a spiritual precept called go through the open door. And I, I didn't really know what it meant per se, other than, okay, this is what I'm going to do to heal. If, if there's some quote door that opens, I'm going to go through it. That might mean if somebody tells me about a book, I'm going to read it. If they, somebody told me about psychotherapy. So that's why I went That's People told me about, uh, I mean, I'm fire walking. It's, it's tents with the smoke. What do you call that? Ceremonies with the, yes, like oh. that. I, I, can't, I can't remember. <laughs> I know what you're talking Sweat baths. Sweat. Sweat. Baths. sweat yes. Like this. Holy mackerel. I thought I was going to die, but it was so good because for a second I was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. It was so hot and the smoke was so low and I'm choking. I'm like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And I, was like, I left afterward. I was like, oh my God, that was so helpful because for a minute I wasn't going all that normal stuff that's like, I'm so ruined. I'm so messed up. I can't, oh my God. And trying to fight with the ghosts of the past. Right. And I thought I was going to die and I had something else to talk to myself about. <laughs> But I, I, uh, I, I kept telling my mom, I'm so depressed. I'm so depressed. Mm. And she, my mom's one of those people that I don't know how, but never really, never experienced depression. So she goes, how do you, you mean like bored? Like, no, not bored. <laughs> depressed. I want to die. <laughs> and she said, well, why don't you help someone, find someone to help? Mm. Maybe somebody who you think seems worse off than you in some way. No, having no idea what I'd gone through. And I was like, I'm young and screwed up in the head and have no future. There is nobody worse than me. Oh, wait, old, screwed up in the head and have no future. And I started volunteering. Mm. 
at old age homes of all kinds, residential facilities, you know, all, just all kinds. And at the time, there were all these Holocaust survivors. And I thought, I am not the first one to go through hell. What I've been through is nothing compared to what they've been through. Mm. I'm going to get fascinated about how people have, in fact, overcome unthinkable stuff. And there were war vets there and Holocaust survivors, and some were happy. I couldn't fathom how, but lived productive, rich lives. And others, understandably, were bitter and angry and resentful and shut off just the way I was. And I started interviewing all of them. They were thrilled to talk. And for me, I was thrilled not to have to listen to my own thoughts and voices in my own head. Wow. So I just kept going. I mean, I went all the time for a decade and interviewed them. What worked, what didn't. And yeah. I, I just started, I got so fascinated. I was journaling and writing and every night I just, I started codifying what they did and didn't do that worked yeah. and didn't work. And then I, I was finding power from certain things and presence and potency. And one of the things in my go through the open door, somebody said, talked about personal development. And I was like, I don't know. Sure. Yeah. I mean, whatever somebody said, I, my vow was I would just say yes to it. And I took these personal development programs and took every single one. And then I was done. And I was like, oh, crud, because I feel so much better when I'm there and not so good when I'm not. Right. And I said, what else do you got? And they go, well, you could train to lead them. And I was like, well, I don't really want to do that. And they go, well, you, you could learn. You're then the, like the author of the education. Heck yeah, that's what I want. So I did. I started leading these seminars and workshops and programs and was doing it. I had led literally for tens of thousands of people and still wow. never shared my story. Wow. Not a peep. So it was like, night, what was that for you? What was that like for you? I had, I tell you, I'd still wake up with nightmares every night, virtually. It was, it was unusual not to. Just, <gasps> but I was also, it was undeniable that I was gaining. I had grown. I had gained some, some skill, some, some talent, some ability to provide space and peace for others. And I, and I did have it. It was still, you know, the, the complex trauma was still pervading my dreams, but for the most part, I felt good except for the fact that, you know, I had this deep, dark secret, but, you know, I just compartmentalized it. That's just, I, people don't need to know that. <laughs> but Jesse, you know, those yeah. secrets eat at us. Yeah. Festers. It You're festers. right. And it keeps shame alive. Oh, yes. Yeah. Shame. Oh, God. I almost said, hello, old friend. Hell no, it ain't my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm leading one of these seminars one night, and I got like two, 300 people in there, and we're doing an exercise on forgiveness. And it's kind of from the book, a little hypothetical. I mean, I'm a good program leader. It was actually great because I had a real passion for it, and I literally needed it to save my life. But this woman goes, no, everything cannot be forgiven. And she just runs up and standing at the microphone at the front of the room and she's saying it can't. And she's talking about her horrific tale for her and her children and the stuff she's experienced. And oh God. And I'm saying, nope, I'm really standing for it. You know, nope, forgiveness doesn't mean you condone. It means you're no, 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 no. And the room is starting to turn. People are walking out. Someone stands up and goes, you don't get it. <laughs> like, oh God. Wow. Stood up and slammed their notebooks down on the ground. I was like, all right. And I had this silent, sh short, but effective come to Jesus with myself. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean, I just had a very serious conversation. I am no longer a child. I am no longer a teenager. I am no longer in jeopardy of whatever I thought, including these men who are probably old by now, chasing me down. 
There is no reason I am silent on this any longer. And I told it. In that seminar? Yes, right then and there as the room was turning. Because I realized it was a disservice to continue to be silent. Wow. And she burst into tears and you could have heard a pin drop, but more importantly, the room actually got it. That's amazing. Amazing. Thank you. How beautiful. What a gift you gave that day. It doesn't work when it's hypothetical, you know? Right. There was this filmmaker in the room that night. And he had just shot a film called Discover the Gift. And he came up to me right afterward and he said, I need you to be in this movie. We finished it. Tomorrow we're going out and shooting some shots of outside to cut between the final edit. Will you tell your story? And I, you know, and the elation of the moment, I go, sure. And I went home and I was like, no. No. And I stood in the mirror. I spent hours in the mirror in the bathroom that night looking in the mirror going, are you going to do this? Are you going to continue to bite your tongue? And I had to actually talk it out with myself. What am I most afraid of? Right. That I didn't make sure justice was served. And these men got back on the street mm. and continued to do what they did. And I just had that conversation with myself. I was afraid I didn't know better. When, we, when, when I saw them walking around town, everybody seemed to know them. They waved, they spoke to people. I was afraid I ran for my life. I did what I did. And I thought I will face the firing squad if people come after me for that. Okay. But I'm no longer willing to be silent. And I shot that movie the next day. It came out like in a number of weeks. And I got asked to do, out of that, this TEDx Santa Monica right afterward. And then it all just, I started doing media all the time and speaking on behalf of victims and survivors and giving a voice to the people who don't have one. Wow. Amazing. I'd seen... This interview with Piers Morgan on CNN or Headline News or one of them, and he was talking to this woman who was a survivor, and I think kidnapping, but I don't recall something sex in this is some kind of sexually related something. And I saw her there. He was talking to her, and she was wide-eyed and and I, as a survivor, you know that look. She was re-traumatized. re-traumatized. She was frozen with fear. She was just paralyzed. And I thought, good God, cut this woman some slack. Get her off camera. Why did they interview her? It re-traumatized her. And, I, and it just, it hit me. I cannot. If I am healed, stay silent. I have the wherewithal to now speak. It is my duty Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being the voice for those that can't. I tell you, it is, the, it is the gift of my life. And as crazy as it sounds and, and kind of incongruous to where we are in the conversation, I consider everything I went through to be a gift because I get to do that and bring dignity to these survivors. It's just. God bless you for that. So many are still in their secrecy and their darkness. And you get to speak that for them on their just, It's so hard. If you don't, I'm blessed to have had the mom I had and the training I had and that open, go through the open door, you know, and the fact that I didn't get addicted to drugs or whatever, that's just the grace of God. And so I have to speak for those who weren't that lucky. And I, you know, I know I'm lucky. I've been 
having these interviews already and I, I know what goes on. I've been dancing around doing this series for years and have talked to so many and thousands of survivors and I like, I, in a way I'm like, oh my God, how dare I share my story? I wasn't in the life for seven years, but look, there's, I'm, I, I, I'm reconciling that with, I'm there. It's a spectrum, right? All of our experiences are different. Trauma is a spectrum, but it's all of these stories need to be shared. Very much. And I can own that. There is no lowerarchy or hierarchy. There's only freedom. Amen to that. And it is, it, it, it is about the freedom and, and creating a world in which people are free physically, mentally, emotionally from all of it. Yes. There are, you know, a couple things I wanted to talk about. It's like, you know, I, I went on after interviewing all these survivors and, and being trained to lead personal development programs and all that. I went on to, I, I codified my own journey as well as the survivors that I spoke to along the way. And I created a framework that helps people overcome trauma. And I taught that for a very long time. I, I, I don't any longer. I, re I recognized that I, that I was complete with that chapter. But part of, I, I studied brain science a whole lot, partially as somebody who I uh, had, had a very severe head injury that was exacerbated by these guys kicking me in the head. But in studying the brain, it's just learning about there's the, all those parts of the brain that govern our survival, pons, medulla, oblongata, the brainstem, amygdala, most primarily. But it's I'm going to stop for a second. There's a siren. I'm like survival, and then there's a police truck driving by. <laughs> yes, that's how easy to get triggered into survival. But the one moment. <laughs> Carol, if you're editing, um, okay, I'm just going to stop for a second and start back. So, okay. So there's this, the parts of the brain that govern our survival, the pons, medulla oblongata, the brainstem, primarily the amygdala, but they govern that fight, flight, or freeze response. And there's a lot of myths about people who are trafficked and people who are assaulted. Like, well, why didn't you leave? Or why didn't you run away? Or how come you stayed? How come you went voluntarily? How come you whatever? right? Mm -hmm. How come you went in the first place? All these questions that come up. And the truth is when you get into a situation or circumstance in which you're, you're you know, the bona fide survival mm -hmm. <laughs> situation where you, you go into not only that fight, flight, or freeze response, but that those survival parts of the brain circumvent the parts that are having to do with logic. Your frontal cortices are nowhere in the equation. You are run by survival. You are not thinking clearly in any way. It's like when I talked about, well, they kept kicking me and telling me to shut up. And I kept talking about my little brother and my grandmother and my folks. And I wouldn't stop. There was no thinking going on then. Right. And the same thing happens with people who are going through this trauma. And I'm saying all these things because I think it's imperative for us to recognize, look, this could happen to anybody. Right. And I know that's going to fly in the face of most logic. And if you're listening to this, it's probably going to fly in the face of your own way that you regard yourself and other people and the kind of people, quote, the kind of people this happens to. But until we can recognize that this could happen to, in fact, any of us at any time, we're never going to become the allies we need to be to end human trafficking. So first, there's that piece about, look, when your survival brain kicks in, there's, it, it, all bets are off. Mm -hmm. You can't think out of that. 
then there's, there's what sets the stage for someone to be lured into this, taken, if you will. And for, for me, it was like there were certain things that set the stage. And there were certain ways then that he groomed me inside of that, even though my grooming period was very short and for most trafficking survivors is quite long. But for the things that set the stage, I, I, I felt things, there were several things that happened in my teens. I had moved around a lot. And as the new kid, you're not accepted. And I felt different and alone. And then I was, I finally tried out for cheerleader and it was a fluke and I made it. And the head cheerleader hated me and made it her job to ruin my life. Now it's like, these are all little bitty things, but it really eroded my self-confidence. I had a brain injury, a very severe one where I was in a coma and it caused depression, like as a organic fallout of head injuries, depression. But it also, I lost my sense of smell and I developed a seizure condition, which made me so embarrassed about my own body that I can't control it. And mm. smell, like as a teenager, I started taking a shower or bath three times a day because I was like, oh my God, I'm going to smell. I'm going to have BO. I'm going to, my, the wow. boys in my high school used to call the girls tuna. I shit you not. Oh, alluding to the smell. And I was like, do I smell like fish? Do I smell like tuna? I think, I mean, I'd only ever try and can tuna at the time, but that smells skanky. I'm going to shower and bathe all the time. And this head cheerleader had done things like smeared dog crap all over my cheerleading uniform and I didn't see it or know, but people all started calling me stinky and stuff like this. And it would just, I, I like, these are some things that set, set the stage. My parents had gotten divorced. I was alienated from my father. I was angry at him and we need, girls need male role models. It's not his fault. It was mine. I was the one that was angry at him, but right. it's these collective group of things and I didn't want to live in the mountains anymore. I wanted to live in the city. I wanted to get away from these mean people in small towns that mm -hmm. know everything about you, that gossip. Right. I just, and it was like, and the final thing was, there was a baby that drowned at our ranch. Now, the truth was none of the adults knew he was there. And the mother came back. I didn't know he was there. And he was left with it. One of the one of my cousins, who was a teenager, like thirteen years old, and she, she, I mean, you know, it wasn't the right place. But this, the mother came back, and understandably, her baby was dead, and she's screaming at me, "You killed my child! You killed my child!" This gets in on a person. Now, I'm not excusing what happened or anything. The point is not that I can understand as an adult why the mother would say this. I really do. I've got compassion. But for me, as a, as a teenager, this set the stage that I wanted to get the hell out and I was going to do anything possible. Now, and I had very little self-confidence. And somebody with very low self-confidence can be manipulated as, uh, till the cows come home. Mm -hmm. You can tell right. I'm a rancher. <laughs> it's like, so now if you look at... These are ways that the stage can be set. I, I want us each to start to look at, well, how can, what might that look like for me if that were to happen? So then he starts grooming me. He finds out what's important to me. He finds out the facts of my life. He dangles those over my head. You can become a model. You could do it. You could live in Paris. I know Vidal Sassoon, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. They dangle what you want and then they take it away if it leaves with them. You must then follow, right? This is grooming. And now- and In that moment, you don't know. You're just answering questions and then you, don't, you can't connect the dots that they're taking what you said. And, you know, it's just totally unconscious. It is, it is a science from these traffickers. Mm -hmm. they, they got it down to a science. They know exactly what to say to prey upon the weak. So it's incumbent upon us to keep ourselves strong and to know who we are and not let things like you just said, shame 
and guilt and blame and all those insidious things that eat at our insides. We have to be strong, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally. So we catch things like that and go, oh, hell no. Mm -hmm. Rather than, oh, yes. And how we get, how he kept me there. At first it was, I said, I, when I started to think, you know, oh, these photos aren't going to happen after I'd been driving with my head, like hanging out the window, drooling. And I was like, I think I should go now. And he said, silly little girl, I've got your purse with your passport and every dollar you have in the world. Where are you going to go? And he was right. Everything I owned was in that damn purse. <laughs> including my, all my family info and all that, which is that's what he used next. Of course. I know where you live and I know where your family is and I know about all these things. He had the address and all of this and then just keep dangling. As crazy as it sounds, dangling that I'm not going to get to be a model during all of it. It's wow. amazing. And then if you're, if you're in the midst of it, you're, you're again, there's no thinking, there's no thinking logical. Right. So again, lest we think this is someone else's problem or people who are trafficked or stupid or weak or just the young or whatever, what's the chink in your armor? What could somebody use to manipulate you? What could they use against you and threaten you with or blackmail you with? Because until we see that this could truly, in fact, happen to, to, to me, we'll always see it as somebody else's problem. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're listening to this and you have gone through trauma, I just, I want to let you know that you are not alone. Now, I don't know what I would have done if somebody would have said that before because I felt so damn alone and was suffering in silence for so long. Did you do the same, Jesse? Suffer in silence? Oh yeah. God. I didn't even know for such a long time, I didn't even know it was wrong until all oh. of a sudden it didn't feel right. Oh God. And so complex. Yeah. You trust and then, then it's shameful to talk about it oh, because God. you're exposing your dirty. Yeah. If, if you are out there and you have been traumatized, you, you truly aren't alone. I got to say, every single time I speak, and I speak, do public speaking a lot, or when I'll do the news or something, people reach out online. Every single time somebody reaches out, at least one somebody, heck, it's more like 10, and says, I've never told this to anybody before. They always start with that, invariably. Yeah. I've been holding this secret my whole life. The numbers that are out there, statistically speaking, are ridiculously high. But they're wildly underestimated because virtually everybody I know that's a survivor hid for so long. Right. It's how we cope and survive. So if you're dealing with this, understand you're not alone. Find someone, find some group of people you can authentically share your story with. And if they use it against you, they're not your people. If you're not safe, if they try to one-up you and trauma share, they're not your people. There are support groups. There are communities. We'll keep posting the links so you've got resources available to you but I want you to know you are in no way alone. You are not damaged. You are not dirty. You are not characterized by what you've gone through. You are characterized by your spirit. And that, my darlings, can never be tarnished. And sometimes on your journey, you may feel like you're doing great one day and crappy the next. Mm -hmm. Complex trauma comes with re-triggering. A few years ago, I was, in a, I, I, I was in a new home. I had just moved there. And there was this rickety gate at the end of the driveway between the front yard and the backyard. 
I came home one day, went in the front door, and the back door was wide open. Somebody had pushed their way into that gate, gone into the backyard, and broke into the house. The back door was, the doorknob didn't really work. I called this big guy friend of mine that knows how to do handyman stuff. And I was like, I need your help right now. Came right on over. God love men. It's just so protective. Came over, fixed the gate, fixed the back door. And I go, here's the thing. I called while he was doing all that and tried to get an alarm set up and they couldn't come out for some reason for like two weeks. Mm. And I was like, I need to know if somebody's been in this house and the windows kind of didn't all lock and it was scared the crap out of me. And he helped me devise this brilliant solution. Painter's tape. Put it on all the window jams, put it on the inside of all the doors, closed the extra bedrooms I wasn't going to go into, taped them all up with painter's tape. And it was brilliant. They got the alarm. I got the alarm installed. I didn't need that anymore. But it let me know if somebody had broken it because it was on the inside. Right. Now, here's the thing. I don't use painter's tape in my day-to-day life. It was like, you know, it was not an all, all the time thing, but it happened at one point in time. I was mm-hmm. dating somebody at the time. We got married and later in the marriage, he used it against me. We're in the midst of a divorce right now. Here's why. That's not my person. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Nobody- Nobody use it, gets to use your trauma against you. He suggested I was unwell because he knew me when I had painter's tape up for, you know, two weeks or whatever. God bless painter's tape. Come on! <laughs> it's like, right? You, crutches are helpful. Just get that they're a crutch and they're not for forever. Mm-hmm. So in this series, we're going to have a dramatically different group of interviews. Some people will have healed, some people won't. It's all perfect. Some of them are stories you'll relate to and some maybe not as much. Some of it's going to be hard to hear. I invite you to listen anyway. I invite you to listen until we're able to share the pain collectively as we've been waking up and doing lately. Thank God. Yeah. We won't be able to heal this and move on as a planet. So my beloveds, thank you for being here. Welcome to Trafficked. If you or someone you know has been taken for sex trafficking or you suspect that's happening, call 888-373-7888 or text the word HELP to 233-733. With your help, we can stop human trafficking now. To keep up with all of our latest work, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Trafficked Series. Please be sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe to our podcast, and listen to our next episode with survivor, founder, and CEO, Rebecca Bender. Rebecca is an award-winning, nationally recognized expert on human trafficking, who also escaped six years of modern-day slavery, along with her daughter in Las Vegas, Nevada. Until then, I am your host, Cheryl Hunter, and we are here to end human trafficking. So remember, if you see something, say something. This is a Conveyor Media production. Host and creator, Cheryl Hunter. Executive producers, Colin Whelan and Rebecca Sermons. Head producer, writer, and editor, Celine Beth Calderon.